Good morning, everybody. Really good to see you all. Welcome to Living Truth. We are in Galatians 4 this morning. Adoption as Sons is the title. So once you turn there with me, Galatians chapter 4. And once you've located the text, if you're physically able to stand, would you stand with us for the reading of God's Word? We're going to look at Galatians 4, 1 through 7, Adoption as Sons. Galatians 4, 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, Galatians 4.1, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled and grateful to be in your presence this morning in the corporate beauty of a gathering like this to sing your praises, to look into your word, as Shane mentioned earlier, to get to know you better. And one of the beauties of who we are in Jesus is that we can realize what you've done for us, the lengths that you went to to make sure that we would be in your family. And this idea of adoption permeates this text, and it, it is close to the heart of many who are here. Maybe they were adopted, maybe they are adoptive parents, and this image of adoption is a beautiful and powerful image of what you did to bring us into your family. The price, incredibly costly. The message, we have great value. We are loved. And in light of everything that's going on in our world, Lord, right now, here in our community, here in Southern California, we need medicine for our souls. This world needs to know who you are. And Father, I pray that you would just speak and that it would not just be the voice of a man that people hear, but it would be the voice of God speaking through the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit, shaping us, molding us, encouraging us, and showing us the beauty of the gospel. We lay this time at your feet. Pray you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Good morning again. This is a communion Sunday, so we'll be taking uh, the Lord's Supper at the end of this message. So if you could prepare your heart for that. Well, this has been a tough couple of weeks here in Southern California and specifically in the Inland Empire, but really you know, out into Southern California, Los Angeles, and really around the world, as uh, we had a local situation happen where three uh, teenage boys connected to North Point and a couple other churches were killed in a tragic car accident. I had the privilege of going to their service at Crossroads on Tuesday. It was about a three-hour service. It was extremely powerful, uh, emotional, uh, 
Everywhere I looked, there were high school students there. Every seat was filled. There were people outside. There were over 3,000 people at this memorial service. Uh, about 1,000 people went to the prayer vigil on Friday night. And uh, the incredible thing about the pain of this situation is that it has opened up an opportunity. You could even call it a divine appointment for many to hear about the truth of the gospel. And then, uh, as you well know, there was the helicopter crash uh, last Sunday morning. I was up here at the pulpit. Someone, Shane, actually brought up his phone that Kobe Bryant was killed, but it wasn't just Kobe Bryant. It was eight other souls, including the baseball coach at Orange Coast College, and there were uh, young people involved. And once again, the, uh, the world, and here specifically in our own backyard, reels with hurt and questions. On Friday night, the Lakers played for the first time since the, uh, the crash. They did a tribute to Kobe, to his daughter Gianna, and uh, to the seven others who died in the crash. And I watched it, and uh, they had some music, and they had a, uh, a speech uh, about Kobe Bryant. But you may have seen this, Usher, the, the musical artist Usher went up there and sang Amazing Grace. I have no idea where Usher stands with the Lord, but I thought it was incredibly insightful and powerful when I heard him say, kind of ad-libbing in the song, these words. We need you right now, every man, woman, and child. Please send your grace. We need you, Lord. We need you right now. I thought that was powerful, especially as it followed the familiar words of Amazing Grace, sung to a packed staple center and then broadcast all over the world. I looked, you know, within the last 48 hours to see how many people watched uh, Usher sing that song, and there was one and a half million views on the internet. And so people are hungry to, to ask some questions about things that are going on. And we have our questions, we all do, about things that happen. And in our particular text this morning, we see a phrase, I want you to just take a peek with me ahead for a moment. It's the phrase in 4-6, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. I did a search on that phrase, and it's only found three times in the New Testament. Uh, the other place other than our text here is Romans 8-15 which we'll talk about uh, as we move forward. And the one other place, and I want you to look with me at the other places in Mark 14. All right, so you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at the beginning of your New Testament. Mark 14. The scene is familiar. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying to his father. Matthew tells us when he voiced this prayer, he was falling on his face, and he, he did it three different times. Luke describes Jesus as being in great anguish. In Mark 14, 36, I think the, the context, the moment is insightful. Jesus was saying, or you could say he was praying, Mark 14, 36, Abba, Father, all things, Mark 14, 36, are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus, in addressing the Father at probably the most anguished moment 
of his human life outside of the suffering of the cross, when he was really wrestling with the prospects of the cup of suffering, the cup of God's wrath, that he would drink in full measure for the sins of the world, he addressed his father as Abba. And scholars who look at this idea of Abba say that it's an Aramaic word and probably best rendered in our language as daddy. Maybe in other cultures it might be papa. It's a, an incredibly intimate, familial, familial uh, word. And it's a word that for those of us who have had children or have children, we know that that word daddy, when it's as a father, when you first heard those words, daddy or dada, um, and, you know, for me, especially, I think, with the firstborn, that's the first word I wanted to hear, so I practiced it with him all the time. Say, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. See, he said it, right? But I remember uh, highlights of my kids' lives when they would get hurt, and it would be, Daddy, 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 Daddy! And that's precious, and it uh, can be emotional. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's essentially what Jesus is saying. Abba, if it's possible, take this coming pain away from me. But not my will, but yours be done. If you turn back to Galatians 4, Todd Wilson writes in his commentary on Galatians, Did you know a baby's cry matches its mother's language? A newborn child just two or three days old cries in a distinctive way mimicking the sound of the child's mother. Researchers recently studied 60 healthy newborn children from both French and German families. What they found was fascinating. Each newborn baby has its own cry melody, a specific pattern of sounds that is unique to his or her cry. But more than that, they found that the babies will match their cry to the sounds and intonations of their mother's voice. Two things discovered in this study. One, a baby's cry matches its language. Two, it matches the intonations of its mother's voice. And Jesus said, when you pray, pray in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your Kingdom come, your will be done. Remember the disciples had asked Jesus, how should we pray? They kept watching him pray. He was modeling prayer, but he was also modeling an, an intimate relationship with the Father and, of course, a yielding to the Father's will. In fact, many times, for example, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, the Father sent me, the Father sent me, and then he will say in John 8, 29, and I always do those things that... Please, my Father. The heart cry of a believer is Abba. And sometimes when non-Christians maybe hear you pray as a Christian and you say, Father, they might be a little bit surprised at that term. And we want to be careful with the term, of course, because we know God is holy and we want to have reverential awe for him. But Jesus taught us to pray, Father. In Ephesians 2, 17 and 19, it says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. 
For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. That's Ephesians 2, 17 through 19. One writer says, Paul realizes that the Galatians have begun to doubt their status as God's children because of false teaching. And sometimes this happens because of doubt and even pain. And thus, they were doubtful about whether they would receive God's inheritance, eternal life. So Paul points to this distinctive cry. You could call this our distinctive cry, and it is, Abba, Father. Some years ago, when I first preached this text in 2005, I was watching a program right before the Sunday services. I think it was on a Friday night. and I think it was called Save the Children or Save Our Children. I watched stories of these children who were all longing to be adopted, but what they were really longing for was love. They wanted to belong. They wanted to be loved. As each of the stories of the kids was told, your heart began to break for them. You found out later in the show that some were fortunately adopted. But it was much harder, especially for the older ones, to be adopted. The older ones had more pain for a longer time. There was often dysfunction, often drug use, brokenness. And the, the parents, the, the potential adoptive parents who opened their home to these kids opened their home to all those potential problems as well. And so when we open our homes in this way, when we uh, adopt a child, and um, I can't tell you that I know that firsthand. I know families who have done that. I personally don't have that experience, but I do know it's a risk. But the biggest thing I think that motivates the whole thing is love. When God wanted to convey to us what he did in our lives to rescue us, he wanted us to muse on, consider the idea of adoption. And I think that that's amazing. I've heard some stories of international adoption that are incredible. In fact, one of the authors I read this week said that he and his wife adopted two boys from Ethiopia. And he was talking about the expense of international adoption because the parents will travel long distances on planes. They will have to deal with foreign governments. They will have to deal with the, the differences in language. But the, the goal, ultimately, what, what's the desire? It's to, it's to bring a child into your home. It's to give them your name. It's to show them love. And for Christian families, it's to bring a child into a relationship with the Lord as well. In Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, Paul wrote, just as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us, Ephesians 1, 5, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. This theme of adoption carries all the way through to the afterlife and even the millennial reign of Christ when Paul writes in Romans 8.23, and not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so this theme of adoption carries its way through from being born again into God's family to finally realizing the new redemption body, 
which will never get sick, never die again, etc. And so it's a hopeful theme all throughout our Bibles. Adoption is the act of taking voluntarily a child of other parents as one's child. In a theological sense, the act of God's grace by which sinful people are brought into his redeemed family. The New Testament, in the New Testament, the Greek word translated adoption literally means placing as a son. And this particular practice was something that did happen in the Greek and Roman world. Teacher Debbie Moon's first grade class was discussing a picture of a family. The little boy in the photo had a different hair color than the other family members. One child suggested that that was so because the boy was adopted. A girl in the class responded that she knew all about adoption because she had been adopted. Another girl asked what it meant to be adopted. Her classmate answered, quote, Adoption means that you grew in your mommy's heart instead of in her tummy. Close quote. In the eyes of the law, the adopted one became a new creature. In Roman society, he was regarded, she was regarded as being born again into a new family. And this is the illustration of what happens in conversion. Let me give you the illustration in verse 1. Now I say, Galatians 4.1, as long as the heir is a child. Most scholars say the best way to render child here is a minor. He does not differ at all, you could say practically, from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. And Ivy, what I'm saying is this, that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. Now, if you've been with us in Galatians, the question that's been hovering over the text is, who are the true children of Abraham? Who is going to actually inherit the kingdom of God? Who is connected to the ultimate seed, Christ? Who are his offspring? Who are his seed that would outnumber the sand of the seashore or the stars of the sky? Who are the true heirs of the promise? And how does one obtain the promise? Do you have to be Jewish? Do you have to be circumcised? Do you have to have a certain kosher diet? Do you have to go through certain rules and regulations? Do you have to go through a mikvah ceremony in water? Do you have to be baptized? What is it that brings someone into a right adoptive relationship with the God of heaven and earth? And that is the ultimate question, is it not? We need to know how one is saved. And Paul has gone through great lengths to turn the jewel of the gospel to show us many different ways in which we can get the idea of who we are in Jesus. In the ancient world, the division between childhood and adulthood was much more definitive than it is in most societies today. Although ancient customs varied, there was usually a prescribed age when a child, especially a boy, would officially come of age and take on the privileges and responsibilities of adulthood. As mentioned in, previous chap in a previous chapter, the Roman ceremony marking that uh, change in status was called the toga virilis. And when you became a man in Roman society, you literally put on the toga. And that was a sign of your adulthood. That was a sign of a rite of passage. It was a sign of, tra of a transition. In the Greek culture, you became a man at 18. And they had a formal festival and a ceremony, and they would actually cut the hair at 18 and offer it to the god Apollo. The god Apollo with a small g, the false god, but part of the pantheon of gods 
uh, worshipped in Greek and Roman uh, religion. In Judaism, the transition from uh, boyhood to adulthood happened for the boy at what's called a bar mitzvah. Bar is son, mitzvah means law, and you became the son of the law. And in that ceremony, if you've been part of a bar mitzvah, there are words that are conveyed to God that I am no longer responsible for this boy. He is now a son of the law. He is now responsible. You could, you've heard this captured in uh, ideas like the age of accountability. And so they had formal ceremonies where once uh, a minor hit that status, he now became considered an adult. In our society, you know, it's the voting age, etc. We get some of that. Some of you have done some rite of passage ceremonies with your own children. But even though a minor would be in a household and be the heir of the whole estate, yet if he was young, if he had not hit that mark yet, he is under subject to NIV guardians and managers until, would you note it, verse 2, the date set by the father. Now in the previous message we studied something called the Patagagas, and he was the household servant who watched over the, the children, made sure they got off to school, did their assignments, and he was, the pedagogue was over the child until that time where the child became independent of the pedagogue. And Paul took that image and said, that's how the law is. We were under the law, under the dictates of the law, until we we're finally set free. Here in verse 2, it is the date, that date is set by the Father. Set by the Father when the status would change. In the, in the Old Testament, God pictures Israel as his son. You could say Israel was God's adoptive son. God chose to love Israel. Not because they were more numerous than other peoples, not because they were greater than other peoples, but just because God decided to love them. And he says, out of Egypt, Hosea 11.1, 1, I called my son. In Exodus 4.22 and 23, through Moses, God says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Israel is my son. Let him go. And God brought ten amazing plagues on the Egyptians to release his child out, out of captivity. But we know there was hundreds of years in there and there was a date set by the father, if you will, when he would bring release to his son, Israel. And that release would come by a deliverer, Moses. And the final plague would be the plague of the death of the firstborn. And the way that you avoided that plague was through the blood of the Lamb. All of this is imagery painting the picture of the gospel and painting the picture of freedom. The point of the analogy is simply this. The heir can, is under the guardianship until the time fixed by the Father. Until then, he cannot be fully free. Here's the application of the illustration. So also we, here's the application to the Galatian Christians and to the Coronian Christians. While we were children, while we were minors, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. I think the we here likely refers both to Jew and Gentile. And here he says, there was a time when we were 
these minors, even though heirs, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. We were not free to be who we were actually called to be. You say, what are the elemental things of the world? You could read volumes. But let me give you the, some of the major views. Stoikion is the Greek word. The definition of stoikion includes the elements that make up the world, like earth, air, and fire, and water. Some people say it means the basic fundamental uh, constituents or propositions or the letters of an alphabet or the elements of speech. It speaks to the basics of disciplines like science and mathematics. The word denotes the elementary or fundamental principles or rules of life or the present world order. This could also include the worship of the elements, which happened in many pagan religions. They would worship the water or the rivers. They would worship the sun. They would worship the air. In fact, in Ephesians 2, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. And so in pagan religions, when they saw the fireball in the sky of the sun, they would say there's a sun god, or there's a moon god, or there's a god of the Nile. In fact, when God turns the Nile red with blood, it's in essence God is saying, your God, God, the true God is saying to the Egyptians, your God, the Nile God, is false. And by the way, I just killed him. <laughs> He's bleeding. Poor Nile. See, this is what was going on in the ancient world. People worshipped the fundamental elements or the elemental things of the world. My view in this con context, those things that make up man-made religion. It is those things tied to human philosophy and tradition. Even Israel, after release from Egyptian bondage, makes a golden calf and worships it and acclaims it as the God who brought them out of Egypt. Can you believe it? Until you look at your own heart, until I look at my own heart, and realize how easy it is for me to flip-flop and trust God one moment and give God my praise with my lips and my heart, and the next moment, maybe even act like I don't belong to him. That's what Israel did. Man's religion, whatever it may be, cannot fathom the full revelation of Jesus Christ. That God's grace caused Jesus to come into the world to taste death for every one of us. And in Colossians 2.8, Paul writes these words. See to it, brethren, beware, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception Colossians 2.8, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, there's that phrase, rather than according to Christ. Don't be duped! Peter T. O'Brien says, the overwhelming majority of recent commentators tells us the elementary principles should be translated elemental spirits. These demonic spirits were thought to control the planetary spheres and thus men's lives, the world order, if you will. And people would try to appease these gods with a small g. 
even going to the extent of sacrificing their children in fire. That maybe their crops would be blessed, in quotes, or maybe they would be protected in their life. You fill in the blank. Man's religion, all about getting something for self, not about dying, not about trying to love others as you have been loved. No, it's about self. And by the way, it is selling like gangbusters even under Christian labels today. It appeals to the masses. Because if you can give me a secret, a button I can push, where I can get what I want on earth, sign me up. And the books fly off the shelves. And it's nothing but age-old man's religion. And the discernment in the Christian church may be at an all-time low. And so also when we were children, we were in slavery NIV, under the basic principles of the world, verse 3. The word for bondage means to enslave. It means to reduce to bondage. These elemental things of the world did not make us free, but held us in slavery. They held us in bondage. And since the context has been the law, we understand that the law of God, and you could just think here of the Ten Commandments, shows us the sin in our lives. And specifically, if you think about the first two commandments, the sin of what? Idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. God's top two. Don't make an idol. So if you think about the commandments of God, you think about the law exposes idolatry for what it is. Take a look at Galatians 4.8. Paul says, However, at that time when you did not know God, You were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. They're no gods at all. People can say, with all due respect to people all over the world, I'm spiritual or I'm religious. But what you, who you worship really matters. And it's not just about pragmatism. It's not just about what works Although that seems to be at the top of the list for many. And it's understandable on one level because we're human and we're looking for solutions and we're looking for things that work. But to know God's ways says, you are Father, you are God. Help me to trust you. One writer says, Paul may well be pointing to the things strongly associated with idolatry, So that the elemental principles of the world would be things like this. Money, sex, power, prosperity. These are the gods of the common age. Would you agree? And these gods were worshipped around the idols. In fact, oftentimes there was demonic activity around idolatry. And there was also... Uh, debased sexual activity around these things. And people said, well, I'm worshiping my God. I'm doing doing what is part of my religion. And Paul says, no. No, 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 no. This is false. Some years ago, I was playing on a slow-pitch softball team with a bunch of born-again Catholics. It was awesome. The team was called The Source. They were a great group of people. They were part of a Catholic church but they all were incredibly committed to the Lord, knew the Lord. We prayed together. It was awesome. And I was 
a disaster. I was a brand new Christian, but I was struggling with so many things. And I remember Ernie was the pitcher on the softball team, and I showed up, and I was, I was a bit of a mess, you know, in my, my uh, disheveled life, if you want to put it that way. And I, Ernie could tell I was struggling, and I said something to Ernie, like, I'm, I'm having a hard time walking with the Lord. And Ernie looked at me, and he had been a long-time believer, and he said, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, man. And I was a little like, blown away. But then I was like, yeah, that's pretty much it. See, this is the struggle. There's appeal to these things in the world. But when the fullness of the time came, Galatians 4, 4. When the time had fully come, if you have an NIV. God, what did he do? He sent forth his son into a world like this, into a rebellious people like Israel who had not heard from a prophet for 400 years. Trace the history of the Jewish people. Would you say the theme of idolatry runs beyond Egypt? Runs beyond the desert? Oh, yeah. All throughout their history, going into the promised land, Idolatry was the biggest problem. And even though God had delivered them from Egypt, they still had the issues in their heart, just like we do. But when the fullness of the time came, when, when the date was set by the Father, God, God the Father here, what did He do? He sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Our sad condition, bondage. To the elemental things of the world. And then God said, there was a time, if I can put it this way, in heaven, where God the Father said to God the Son, go now. Go. And He fulfilled all these prophecies in Isaiah 9, Isaiah 7, Micah 5, and many other places. And God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. God did not send His Son into the world, John 3.17, to judge the world or condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through Him. 1 John 4.9 says, By this the love of God was manifested in us. God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. I probably have about 20 verses, maybe more, that I could rattle off to you right now about the Father sending the Son. And the motivation of God the Father, love. The motivation of God the Son, love. The motivation to bring me and you into His family. What would you be without him? Where would you be without him? We were praying earlier, and that's something that came out in the prayer. Imagine where you would be. What if you weren't in his family? You know, right now the world is reeling and asking questions, and that's a good thing. Because the gospel is medicine to every broken, hurting heart. 
And my prayer for Southern California, for Corona, for the world, is that we would wake up. Can I ask you, what will it take? What is it going to take to get our hearts back to God? What's it going to take? And we know what happens. There's, there's an event that happens. It's shocking. It's devastating. People sing Amazing Grace in public venues. But I ask the question, what does it mean tomorrow? What does it mean in a week? What does it mean in three weeks? Does it mean that churches will be filled on Sunday mornings? Does it mean that our priorities will actually shift to walking like we're actually the children of God? And I know you're asking those questions too. Jesus was sent by the Father. The Father loves you. And he came in the fullness of time. You say, what's the fullness of time? Well, it's the completion of the period of preparation in God's sovereign timetable of redemption. Christ's appearance ushered in the fullness of time, you might say. When the law had fully accomplished its purpose, when it became crystal clear that we cannot keep the law, when even the most religious among us could not say their heart is pure from lust, adultery, hatred, you name it. Warren Wiersbe says, God was preparing the world for the arrival of his son. From the historical point of view, the Roman Empire itself helped prepare the world for the birth of the Savior. Roads connected city with city. All cities ultimately with Rome. Roman laws protected the rights of citizens and Roman soldiers guarded the peace. Thanks to both the Greek and Roman conquests, Latin and Greek were known across the empire. Christ's birth at Bethlehem was not an accident. It was an appointment. Jesus came in the fullness of time. And the writers of the time said there was messianic expectation. People were longing that a Messiah would come. The Jewish people were under Roman occupation. When Jesus appeared on the scene, they were under the thumb of Rome, just like most of the known world was. And they were trying to break free from that. And the one who would bring freedom is Jesus. Notice he was born of a woman. That doesn't mean the virgin birth here. It simply points to his full humanity. He was fully human. You might write down... Job 14.1 and Matthew 11.11. His was a miraculous birth, yet you could say natural in the sense that he was fully human. Hebrews 2.14 says of Jesus, Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. He was born under the law, he bore the full obligation of the law and kept it perfectly, as well as taking the curse of the law, which is death. Although he perfectly kept the law, he also took the curse. This is Romans 8.3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why did he do this? He did this, verse 5, Galatians 4, in order that he might redeem, key word in the New Testament, 
redeem those who were under, you could say under the burden of the law, under the weight of the law, under the condemnation of the law, under the curse of the law, that we might receive what? Here's our word. Here's our title. The adoption as sons. And this would include, of course, sons and daughters. Redeemed is a word commonly used for the buying of a slave's freedom. Adoption is a powerful image. And I want to share a story from Todd Wilson. He writes a commentary on Galatians. Uh, this is the pastor and wife who adopted these two boys I told you about. And here's what he says. When my wife and I adopted twins from Ethiopia, it was an extensive and intensive and indeed expensive process. We had to travel a remarkably long way to Addis Abba, the capital of Ethiopia, where our boys lived. Once in that country, we still had more work to do, and it wasn't always easy or straightforward. But imagine if my wife and I would have sent our firstborn son, Ezra, to Ethiopia to adopt our twins for us. And just imagine if we knew that the only way we were going to be able to adopt Addis and Rager was to let Ezra be publicly executed while in Ethiopia. What if the only way to adopt our twins was to sacrifice our firstborn? Isn't that insightful? Because that's what God the Father did. He sent his son on an adoptive rescue mission, but the price for the adoption was not simply sweeping by and picking us up. He had to live under the obligation of the law. He had to live perfectly to fulfill the law. And then he took the curse of the law to purchase our redemption. Is that love, brothers and sisters? Do you think that this is the medicine that our culture needs I don't think there's any doubt about it. See, the gospel is so incredibly powerful and beautiful. This is precisely what the Father did so that we might receive adoption as sons or as his children. If, we're, if we are God's sons or daughters, he goes on, we enjoy the privilege only because of adoption. God went to great lengths to secure our adoption. He spared absolutely no expense. In fact, he paid the highest price by giving his son so we could be made right with him and become his children by faith. Recognizing this, is it any, any wonder that the scripture says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. I would imagine on the receiving end of adoption, a child might say something like this, finally somebody loves me. Finally, somebody wants me. Imagine an older child. You know, we, we told you guys about the Royal Family Kids Camp ministry that goes on through Living Truth and other churches. Imagine one of those kids. You know, I've been there before and I've heard some of the stories and I hear when the kids get off the bus and they're uh, usually between like six and ten years old, they are very weary. Very, some of them are angry. Some of them have been abused and hurt and wounded and they have a tough time trusting. And when they get off the bus, the first thing the team does is they have signs and they're excited and then they're welcoming them, welcoming them with the love of Jesus. Amen? See, this is the message of the gospel. Someone actually loves me. 
How many broken people do you think are walking around our streets right now with mental illnesses and the like, all because they feel like nobody loves them? Nobody cares. You ever taken a moment to reach out to someone who seems so different and so, like, everybody wants to ignore them, and you, and you spark up a conversation, and they speak as normally as the next person? But because of their plight, because of their situation, people stay away. Jesus came to our rescue. Somebody loves you. But here's the question. Will you say yes to him? You see, in Genesis 24, the ladies are studying Genesis, and in Genesis 24, when uh, there is a, an offer for Rebecca to be married to Isaac, the parents say to Rebecca, she's never seen him before, they say, will you go with this man? Will you go with the servant to marry this man? She's never seen him before. She has, she has a moment of decision. Will you go with this man? And she says, I will go. She had to travel a long distance and she had to leave her family behind. No modern transportation. She had a moment to ask the question or to answer the question, will you say I do? Will you say I will? Because you are sons, verse 6, you could say the implication of the illustration now, final few verses. Because you are sons, Church, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son. I want you to notice, Bible students, the Holy Spirit is called here the Spirit of His Son. The close relationship with the Trinity is here. Into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Would you note it? The Father, the Holy Spirit, the Son, all involved in our salvation. And you may be asking, how do I know that I'm a son? How do I know I'm a daughter of the Most High God? What is the evidence by which I can know I belong to the Father? The evidence is the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. He is the seal or the authentication of your identity. His Spirit, God's Spirit, bears witness with my spirit, Romans 8, that I am a child of God. And one of the cries of a child is, Abba, Father. See, there's an intimacy here. This is the sign and the seal. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you, listen, as orphans I will come to you. John 14, 16 through 18. I'd like you to turn to one more passage, and it's the book of Romans, a little bit back in your Bibles. Romans chapter 8. And I want you to see the grand implications of our position, our future, and how even this uh, intersects with the suffering around us. This is Romans 8, 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, Romans 8, 15. You have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You don't have to be afraid, but you have, Romans 8, 15, received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children 
heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. But keep reading. If indeed we, what? Suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Yes, we groan. Skip down to 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. You could say the completion of our, our adoption, which is the redemption of our body. Abba. Back to Galatians and we'll finish it. One writer says, Recently my 21-month-old, who just learned to say daddy, had been struggling with asthma and an ear infection for two weeks. He coughed and sneezed continually. His nose ran like a faucet. Each night when I came home, he ran to meet me at the door, smiling, coughing, nose running, yelling, Daddy! Daddy! I was not repulsed by his runny nose or his close-range sneezes in the least. He slimed every shirt I own. <laughs> he says, I love him so deeply, and I so enjoy his love for me. I'm reminded that though I am sick with sin, God loves me so deeply and desires that I run to him as a son crying, Abba. Oh yeah, I've got my hang-ups. Yeah, I've got my issues. Yes, I've got my struggles. Yes, I've got my doubts. But isn't it beautiful to know, the Father says, come, I love you, warts and all, <laughs> runny nose and all. <laughs> Therefore, you are no longer a slave, brethren. What are you? You're a son or a daughter. And if you're a son or a daughter, you are an heir through God. I want you to notice in your Bible, verse 7, if a son, what does that imply? Not everybody's a son. If you are a son, you're an heir. Can I ask you, are you? Why would anyone leave this question hanging? Please don't do that. You say, well, how do you become a son or a daughter of the Most High God? You say, yes. You say, I realize that the world has been an orphanage for me, spiritually speaking. I realize Jesus says that if, you're, if you sin, you're a slave of sin, but I want to be free, and the Son makes people free, and I'm going to ask him to make me free. Would you bow your hearts? Father, for those who are crying out in the heart of hearts of their soul, would you set them free? Would you give them their adoption papers? Would you seal them with the Holy Spirit? Ask the Lord to save you right now. The Spirit will come into you. You'll be born again to a living hope. You'll be a new creation in Christ. You'll have a new family, a new Lord, a new Father. It's an amazing transformation. Please, right now, if you've never done this, just say, Lord, thank you for sending Jesus. Father, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you that he came to rescue me. Thank you that he died for me to pay the price. Thank you that he rose from the dead, I ask you, make me your child. Adopt me into your family. Save me, Lord. Make me free. In Jesus' name.
Father, thank you for those who have prayed and thank you for the beauty of the gospel. I just pray that as we come to your table and we remember what Jesus did for us, that this, these moments would be precious, that they would be intimate, that we could do a little business with you, have a heart of thanksgiving, but also have a heart that says, Lord, I want to get these things right in my life as well and just help me to follow you and walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.